Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. This is part two. Obviously, we're in a study this whole year about spiritual warfare, and we've been looking at the origin of evil, uh, where this started. And obviously, we've looked at current events before this, and so we see a lot of evil in the world. But it's important to understand how you're, how, where this all came from, because when you study Satan, the origin of where all this came from, the origin of rebellion, the origin of sin, it's important to understand who he was, where he came from, because then you have to understand his tactics that will be used against you. And what's, what's happening to most people is they, they don't take this as real. You know, people in Christendom, they've been told, yeah, there's Satan and there's spiritual warfare, and they don't take it seriously. They actually don't know how to see it when it's happening to them. And uh, we talk about psychops. Satan is the master at psychops. He will mess with your mind to get you to think all kinds of crazy stuff and to believe certain crazy stuff. And you will believe that a lot of that stuff for the rest of your life it's not, if it's not broken by the truth. It's amazing to know that Satan will attack you when you're young. And why does he do that? He does that because you don't have the mental capacity to fight it off. And so he attacks you when you're a child. So a lot of the spiritual warfare starts when you're the most vulnerable. And then if he implants things into your head at that time, and obviously it's not him personally, it's the demonics that are, uh, are the fallen angels that are assigned to you. Yes, you have people, uh, sorry, fallen angels or demons assigned to you that are watching you, watching your every move, and they figure out how to get to you. They get to you through your trauma. They get to, to, to you through your pain. They get to you through your suffering. And they use that against you to give your, give you lies to believe in. And then when you grow up, you actually believe those lies and they, you become a functioning adult that's basing their life on lies. And then they become a Christian. And then what happens is you have a conflict going on inside the person. The person is now being told the truth. And at the same time, they've lived the life of lies for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And then the conflict comes when those two worldviews collide inside the individual. And by default, if the, if the individual doesn't mature, they will always default into the lies they believe. And that's how they will function. And it's how we coped with life. It's how we dealt with things. So we didn't have someone when we were younger walk us through the things that were going on in our lives. And so Satan took advantage of that. And the first thing you have to understand with Satan is he he doesn't play fair. He doesn't play fair at all. If people think he's playing fair, you have another thing in, in mind. He will attack your children at the earliest age he can. Okay? You have to know that. He is a destroyer, a murderer, a liar. And because of that, he takes the most vulnerable and messes with them. That's how evil is created is to uh, take advantage of the vulnerable. So we'll get into a lot of that, but the first thing you have to understand is where where the origins of him come from, what happened, how did he fall, how did he rebel? Because if you understand the rebellion, you'll understand what's going on currently in the world. You'll understand why global communism 
is being pushed all over every everything um, because the communist system is a system that comes from Babylon and is directly related to what Satan invented. So it, it has direct application on a, on a societal level, but also on a personal level. So we talked about last week, Halil Ben Shakar, that's his name, and uh, he is a cherubim, as we learned last week, and cherubims are the highest-ranked angels, like we talked about. And we, we work through Ezekiel 28. We're going to continue to work through this. We, what we learned last week, just as a refresher, is that he was maxed out in his blueprint. As far as he was maxed out in wisdom, maxed out in beauty. Uh, he's the most beautiful creature even to this day. That's why he's so seductive, is because he is beautiful. The, you know, the medieval church portrayed him as ugly and, 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 uh, you know, uh, as a dragon or as a serpent or whatever. And that's a metaphor. When you see the term serpent or dragon, it's a metaphor for his activities. And, and also the serpent is what he indwelled when he was, uh, tricking Adam and Eve and tempting them. But he's the most beautiful creature God has ever created. And he still retains that. Just because he fell doesn't mean he doesn't, he doesn't look that way. Now, the thing about fallen angels, and you have to understand that they're shapeshifters because they're metaphysical and they're multidimensional, is that they can actually manifest into different looking things. They do have a form, a final form, but they can look like different things. That's why when we talk about familiar spirits, when we get into that, familiar spirits are demons or fallen angels who actually can impersonate dead loved ones. They look like the dead loved one. They sound like the dead loved one. They know things about the dead loved one. They will tell you secrets about the dev, dead loved one. They will smell like the dead loved one. And that's where the idea of people uh, thinking about ghosts. It's not ghosts. They're called familiar spirits. They're shapeshifters. So Satan can transform himself into anything he wants to. Uh, same thing as a, a fallen angel. That's why when the, you have these UFO sightings, they can manifest themselves as a ship, whatever they need to appear as, because they can do these things. They're shapeshifters. And that's where the concept of shapeshifting comes from, is from these fallen angels or, or whatever, demons, they can morph into different entities. So as an example, I've had numerous people tell me that, um, you know, hey, I was... I was um, at my house one night, or was driving in my car, and lo and behold, um, in the back seat of my car was my grandpa. And uh, and I, you know, you say, okay, what did grandpa say? Well, he just smiled and said, everything's okay, everything's all right. Okay, that's all he said, right? Yeah. But so how how do you know it's grandpa? Well, what do you mean? Do you think I'm crazy? No, I don't think you're crazy. I think you had a real experience. And I think you had a real experience with a, a, uh, a spirit creature that can transform themselves into the likeness of your grandfather and can act like that. But uh, the message, what was the message to you? The message is everything's okay. Everyone gets to go to heaven when they die. Everything's going to be all right. I said, that's a lie. No, you're not going through heaven unless you're going through the Messiah. That's a lie. So you had a lying spirit and a shapeshifter. And so a lot of times people, they, 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 they come to you and they think, well, you're going to think I'm crazy if I tell you this. And I'm like, I don't think you're crazy. I think you're really seeing that. So, Brandon, when they say, when I see a full-flatting manifest uh, creature in my hallway that has the top body of a man and the, the legs of a dog, that I'm not crazy? No, you're not crazy. 
Well, what was that? I call that, that's a fallen angel or a demon. I go, did you notice that it was a hybrid? It had multiple parts of different animals and was part human? So does um, cherubims. They have different parts. So seraphims, they have different parts of them. Like a cherubim has a lion head, an a ox head, an eagle head, and a man's head, right? So they have different parts of animals attached to them. So what came first, the animals or the angels? So the animals are patterned off of who? The animals are patterned off of angels. Cherubim already had wings, an eagle head, a lion head, before a lion was even created. They had an ox head before an ox was created in Genesis. So that when you look at an animal, you're seeing the parts of what angels look like. In this case, yes. The four heads of cherubim represent the power of the animals and the power of humanity. The power in humanity is obviously a man's head. The power in, in the, uh, the uh, bird family is the eagle. The power in the servant animal is the ox. And the power in the uh, uh, wild animals is the lion. So it's the top heads of humanity and the animal. Um, so that's the, the point. They also correspond to the four Gospels in presenting the Messiah, the cherubim. They represent the Messiah, they represent the four Gospels. How so? The lion is who? The lion of the tribe of Judah. The eagle is John's Gospel because the eagles come from heaven. The Messiah comes from heaven. The servant animal, the ox, represents the servanthood of the Messiah. That's Mark. And then the, the, the human head represents that Messiah is human and represents the book of Luke. So Matthew is the lion. Mark is the servant. Uh, Luke is the human head, and and uh, John is the eagle. What is being emphasized in each gospel? The lion of the tribe of Judah is being emphasized to the Jews. In Mark, which is written to Romans, is being emphasized that Messiah is the perfect servant. And then Luke is written to uh, Gentiles or Greeks, which looked for the perfect human. And so Messiah is being portrayed as the perfect human, son of man will be emphasized. And in John, the eagle represents the deity of the Messiah, and what's emphasized in John's gospel is the deity of the Messiah. So you have all four heads of the cherubim represented by the Messiah, also represented by the four gospels. Any questions on that before, before we go? Good question, Bill. Okay, so the angels, when they were created, were created with features that eventually God would manifest through other types of creation, man, animals and whatnot. Okay, just a more review. We, we realized that he was in Eden, the, the garden, um, the meta, uh, sorry, the, uh, the, the metal, uh, precious metals and precious gem, earth, Eden, and that's the context. The original earth was a gem earth. We talked about that, and there was an Eden there, so it says that he was located in the Garden of God, so that's one abode that he had access to, and he also had abode, uh, the access to the abode in heaven where the temple and the tabernacle uh, of God was. So he had access back to earth and heaven, okay? And his, his, uh, his, the way he looks is that Satan is covered with the very gems that the earth is covered with. So he, he's, we talked about man is made out of clay and the earth, we come from the earth, so our bodies are related to the earth, right? So his body that was created is related to the original earth that he was on. We talked about that. 
And that's what he's, you know, onyx, jasper, sapphire, and, and, and things of that nature. Then we looked at last week that his workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, that means his musical instruments that were given to him to lead worship in heaven. So he was the lead worshiper in heaven on the day you were created, that those things were given to him. Then we talked about last week that he was the anointed or Messiah cherub who covers. He's the canopy cherub over the throne, and that cherub is now missing now because he rebelled. And and we noticed we noted that the um, he's the messianic cherub. Now, what does that mean? He's the messianic cherub. It means that he was picked out of all the uh, Elohim creatures, the spirit creatures, to be the head of all of them. So we have like Michael, the archangel. Michael is the head of the third class of messengers. We don't know who the arch seraphim is. It's not named. And then we do know who the arch cherubim is, and it's Satan. He's the anointed cherub. He is the messianic cherub. And so he was the head of all of them. He is the highest ranked uh, of all of them. So you have cherubim, seraphim, uh, and then you have messengers. Uh, we call angels or angelos in Greek. And then it says you were on the holy mountain of God, the holy mountain, and you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That's talking about his activities on earth, walking back on the midst of the fiery stones. The fiery stones is what the earth was made out of at that time. And then it says you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So there was nothing in him no, until then, and here's where we go, until iniquity was found in you. Okay, so this is somewhat of a mystery. So this creature maxed out in his blueprint, maxed out in wisdom, maxed out in beauty, all of a sudden, iniquity is found inside of him first. So it starts inside of him. And this iniquity, we know from other passages, was the issue of pride. Pride started inside of him. Now, you add all the things together in the pieces, and it, it, you can see how his pride started. He's a covering cherubim over the throne, He's the worship leader. He's the leader of all the Elohim, the angels, uh, if you want to call them. He is put in the highest position. He's the most powerful of all the angels. Um, and he's, in, he's the closest to the throne. So you can see where his pride would come from, right? That he want, he's the director of worship, but then he wants the worship, right? He wants what God has. And he thinks he's powerful enough that, that he can achieve this on his own and be like God. And, you know, that's where pride comes in. You think you're, you're more than what you really are. And then what happens is, so the sin starts in him, and this tells you what he does after it starts in him. It says in verse 16, by the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. So, this is what starts happening, the abundance of your trading. So what it's indicating in the Hebrew is that once he got so prideful enough that says, I can take the throne, he then went to every angel. And the idea of trading with them is that he tried to convince every angel to rebel against God. That's where the idea of abundance of your trading, he went from angel to angel trying to convince them. He was able to convince a third to rebel with him against God. And the idea is that he became filled with violence within. The violence is within him because he's rebelling. That's where the violence is. He's in rebellion towards God. And so once he goes into rebellion towards God, it, it means that he's in rebellion towards not only the person of God, but everything God stands for. 
the morals, the ethics, the rules, the precepts, everything. He's, he's now against it. So this is the birthplace of 180ism, or we call it in Scripture, lawlessness. This is the birth of lawlessness. Well, what do you mean? Well, lawlessness doesn't mean anarchy. It means that I'm going to oppose somebody with the opposite. And so God says it's this way. Satan says it's that way. He does the opposite. This is where opposites come in. And so, like, if you, 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 you look at our culture, they celebrate opposites, right? So God says a family unit is supposed to be derived ideally from a man and a woman having family. The opposite is happening in our culture. We're saying, no, no, you can have two moms, two dads, three dads, three moms, this, that, yada, yada. A family, you could have a horse, whatever, whatever you want to include in that family. And so that's the opposite. Okay? So every, so the, the, the immorality, when you look at immorality, it is the opposite of what God says. God says this is moral. They say it's immoral. So this is where the, 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 180ism, uh, the lawlessness came in. Now, what Paul is mentioning now in 2 Thessalonians is that the spirit of lawlessness is already at work. It's working right now. And what is it doing? To usher in the lawless system, the Babylonian system, that uh, the Antichrist, the lawless one, will be over. So this system was created then. It's going to have its culmination in the Antichrist. Okay, so... And he goes, and you sin. So there's the violation of what he did. He, the sin was rebellion, okay? So the pride welled in him, and then the sin he committed was rebellion. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stone. So here's what you start realizing. Okay, this is talking about the abode of, of the original earth. I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. So he goes from being the archangel, the highest of the, all the angels, the Elohims, to being now a profane cherub. He was the arch cherub, now he's the profane cherub. So all heaven sees him as profane for what he did. I cast you as a profane thing. He's, he's, he's ruined is the idea. Can't use you anymore. You're profane. You're an abominable thing. And, and so now he's not able to be used. So therefore, because he's a profane thing, he's cast out of the mountain of God. Where's the mountain of God? It's on earth. It's where the Garden of Eden is, the original gem Garden of Eden. And it says, I destroy you. Now, the term Hebrew word doesn't mean to annihilate, because that's not what he did to Satan. But he judged him to where he is now in a ruined state after God's judgment on this, of kicking him out of the abode. This is the first abode that he kicks out, he kicks him out of. And so he says, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. I destroyed you from the midst of the fiery stones. So basically, you now have no access to the gem earth. I'm kicking you out of this abode. That's the first judgment. And then if you move to the second, he talks a little bit about more of internally what was going on in him. He says, your heart, so Satan has a heart? Yeah, even immaterial creatures, Elohims, spirit creatures, have hearts. It's not a, it's not a physical heart. The heart is the center of the being. 
The heart is the center of us. The heart and the mind are synonymous in Scripture. But it's where we think, it's where our emotions are, it's where our will is. And that's where his is at too. So in the, in the center of his being was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So the idea is he fell in love with himself. It is the ultimate narcissist. He was so beautiful that he fell in love with himself. This is why you'll see fairy tales about people falling in love with themselves. Uh, narcissists. That's where the term narcissi- narcissist comes from. Uh, from, from the legend, uh, I think his name is Narcisse or something like that, that he fell in love with himself, right? Well, it's Satan. The, the story of, of that comes from Satan. He fell in love with how he looked because he was so maxed out. He's so beautiful. It's the ultimate in, uh, narcissism. Okay. So, you're willing to corrupt your wisdom and the, the wisdom is now his wisdom is now going to be evil. It's corrupted now. Evil has now entered into his wisdom. He is the smartest creature that God ever created. Now that intelligence is going to be used for evil purposes. So when people think that they can talk to Satan and, and you like these preacher guys that they are going to cast Satan out, they're going to speak to Satan, you know, all crazy, you know, like that. You've seen them on TV, right? They have no idea who they're dealing with. They absolutely have no idea. And they're like, oh, uh, we're going to balance Satan. We're going to get him by the tail and cast him out. And Satan, get out of here. You have no place here. And it's like, oh, my goodness. Do you understand there's a warning that false teachers will talk bad about even false uh, or fallen angels? There's a scripture about that. Paul warned about that, that the way you understand a false teacher is they don't understand this spiritual realm, and that's why they, they talk fast and loose about Satan or fallen angels. They're evil, no doubt about it, but you have to have a certain amount of healthy respect for the creature that's coming against you. You have to know your enemy. This is the most intelligent creature in the universe. If you think you're going to go toe-to-toe with one of these creatures, you're out of your mind. They are way more smarter than you, way more wiser, far more intelligent, and they will thread you into a theological pretzel that you will never be able to get out. The only saving grace is when you rely on Scripture and Messiah. That's your only saving grace with these creatures. It's your only protection. It's your only way to deal with them. You can't deal with them on your own. And so I want you to understand the wisdom of what's happening here. Here's the most incredible wisdom ever created, maxed out to its blueprint, and it's corrupted. It's evil smart. It's intelligent smart. So that's, a, that's, a, that's a competitor. That's an that's a enemy. Man, oh man. That's why we need God in this. Because God's infinite. He's way beyond Satan, obviously, Right? And that's why we have to rely on him in this kind of battle. You can't take him on by yourself. Okay. Now you're going to get into some prophetic uh, aspects. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. Now, you're going to say, well, when he fell, that didn't happen because human beings didn't, like, there was no kings. There's no human beings at this point in time. What is that? Ah, 
Now, that's a part of prophecy that you have to learn. This is called the uh, perfect prophetic. The perfect prophetic, you'll see this in Scripture, is where God will declare something, and, and he will declare it as if it's a past action, as if it's already done. But it's still future. It's a future perfect. And so God will say, God's basically saying, Satan, one day, it's as good as done, I'm going to lay you to the ground, and I'm going to cast you before kings. One day, the kings of the earth will see you on the ground. Now, how is that going to happen? Now, what's the fulfillment of that? Well, in, in the Old Testament, you didn't, you didn't know when this was going to be fulfilled until we got the New Testament. And the New Testament indicates, and John, the last book of the Revelator, indicates in Revelation chapter 12 when this occurs. It occurs when Satan is finally kicked out of the heavenly abode, finally, and he is cast to our abode, the earth. When he is cast to our our abode, uh, John says he knows his time is short, but it's a fulfillment of I cast you to the ground. It's referring to I cast you to the earth and I laid you before kings. That's when he did it. You have the ten kings at that point in time, and Satan is now bound to our earth at that point in the in the middle of the tribulation. So that's how that comes to fruition. So it's a, a it's a future perfect. Okay. And then notice, so now it goes back to what happened at the time of his fall. And it says in verse 18, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities. Now, what was the multitude of iniquities? Going from angel to angel, trying to convince them to come against God, right? That was the multitude of iniquities. But what is the idea that you defiled your sanctuaries? Ah, so he was cast out of the, the, the mineral earth and the mineral garden of Eden, so he's now cast from that authority, and then in heaven, that's where the sanctuaries are, the temple of God is in heaven, and then he he's cast out of that area because he defiled those sanctuaries. He defiled them by his iniquity of his trading. Now, let me stop there before I go to the rest of the passage. So in heaven, as you see in the book of Revelation, as you see with Isaiah, as you see with Ezekiel, there is a temple there. There's an altar, and this is what Moses patterned the temple on the earth after, or the tabernacle after, and that's what the temple was patterned after of what Moses saw in heaven. The candelabra, table of showbread, altar of incense, it's all there in heaven right now. Okay, So that's the real one. And in the real one, there is an Ark of the Covenant. It's God's throne. There is another Ark of the Covenant. The real Ark of the Covenant is there in heaven. Well, this sanctuary was defiled by Satan. And so people will say, well, what's the big deal about that? Well, if the sanctuary is defiled, it has to be cleansed. And the only thing that can cleanse defilement of a sanctuary is blood. Mm-hmm. No, because they're creatures. Only God is timeless. God is eternal. But creatures like cherubim, all the air, all the, the, the seraphs, angels are time bound. Now they're multidimensional, but they're in time. We're in time. And so the mistake a lot of times people have about heaven is, oh, it's timeless. No, no, no. It's heaven is time without end because heaven is dynamic. The aspects of heaven changes constantly. If it's eternal, then it could, it would remain static. 
This is why God says, I don't change. Only eternity doesn't change. And the eternal one can say, I never change, right? That's what God says repeatedly. I don't change. But heaven does. Heaven changes locations. Uh, certain things are, are made brand new. By the way, before the, the, the Messiah went back into heaven at the ascension, New Jerusalem didn't exist, did it? He goes, I go to prepare a place for you, which means that he went to construct something brand new in heaven that wasn't there before. So that shows you that there's a time lapse in heaven. Revelation chapter 6, there was a half, I think it was Revelation 6 or something. Yeah, no, no. Before the, before the, I'm sorry, before the, the uh, seal judge, no, bowl judgments, it says there was a half hour in heaven. Indication of time. The martyrs in Genesis 6 say, how long, O sovereign Lord, do we have to wait? Just a little while longer. That's an indication of time. So when we're in heaven, we have to have time. Otherwise, everything would happen at once. See, with God, because he's out of sight of time, everything happens to God at once. That's why he can be, that's why he says, I'm the great I am. Who was, who is, and is to come is an indication of eternality, right? That means he sees all of it at once, which in our minds, we can't conceive because we're time-bound creatures, and so are angels. So angels in us have to have an environment, and even heaven is like this for the angels, that has a lapse of time. And we will forever have to have a lapse of time because of the being, us being creatures. Now, how that time goes is, is basically we have time without end. So, I know I don't want to get too deep into this, but if you had a timeless situation... We couldn't, we, 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 you wouldn't notice a sequential element of things happening. It, everything would just happen at once. Uh, and that's what it does for God. And we can't, we can't grasp that. You can't have a, 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 a finite creature being able to experience infinity. We just couldn't, it would, it would make us come apart. And so, therefore, there's a passage of time. And so, that being the case, they do sense time. They understand. Um, that's why the, the term is how long, O Lord? How much more longer? They, they sense time. So anyway, that being stated, where am I at? You, you defiled your sanctuary. Okay. So if there's a defilement of sanctuary, the way you, 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 you undefile something is you do it through blood. Okay? We're defiled. And the only thing that makes us clean is what? The Messiah's blood. Blood is what cleanses you from defilement. That's why they had the old animal sacrifices to point to that fruition. But the sanctuary of God is defiled. Or was. So, what is the deal about blood cleansing the temple? How, how is God going to cleanse his own temple in heaven? It has to be done by blood. Jesus did it. Are we sure that Jesus did it? Yeah. I told you that one time. You second it? You sure I told you? Yeah. The softball. But it's important to know because at the cross, there was more happening, obviously, at the cross than what most people are taught. There's a whole cosmic thing happening there. 
And one of the issues about the cross, it's resolving the angelic conflict. And one of the ways of solving the angelic conflict is one of them. There's multiple ones. But one of them is to be able to cleanse the sanctuary in heaven. And so what you have to do is when you read Hebrews 9, if you don't have this background about what Satan did about him defiling the sanctuaries, you won't, you'll read Hebrews and you won't understand what the writer of Hebrews is trying to say. So if you turn to Hebrews chapter 9, I'm going to read this. You can read with me, but I'll just read it out for everybody. I think 23 is a good place to start. Ah, okay. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. What? Blood. The whole chapter is about blood. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. The, sac- the better sacrifices is... Uh, is Messiah's sacrifice in comparison to animal sacrifices. For Christ has not entered the holy place, the holy places made without hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another, he then would have to offer, or sorry, have to suffer uh, often since... Uh, the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sin of many to those who eagerly await for him, who will appear a second time apart from salvation, for salvation. And so um, if you do that, if you add that passage of talking about Christ entered the holy place to appear before God with his own blood, and then you tack on to this, and I'm trying to find the other passage here in the chapter. Ah, verse 12. And whoever mentioned verse 12, that's where I wanted to begin. You're right. So you add what I just read and couple it with verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Okay, so then you combine that, that Christ enters into the, the, the real heavenly tabernacle with his own blood. Now, wait a second. Why does Christ have to take his own blood to the heavenly tabernacle to cleanse the tabernacle from the defilement in Ezekiel? And it's only Messiah's blood that can, def- that can cleanse the defilement. And so... When people read this, they're like, okay, he took his own. Is that metaphoric? No. He really did take his own blood. So if you want to know where Messiah's blood is today, it's in heaven. It was used on the altar to cleanse the tabernacle. And obviously the blood uh, gets us redemption, right, too, at the same time. That's what bought our redemption is his blood. But it also cleanses the tabernacle, the heavenly one. So I entered it. Now, this might solve the problem when you, you read about the resurrection, and most people miss this one. After his resurrection, the women find him eventually. He appears to them, and they think he's a gardener. You remember that? And then they recognize his voice. And he goes, Mary, and she recognized it. She comes to him, and she's about to touch him, and he says, don't cling to me. Don't cling to me, for I have not arisen to my father. You remember that scene? Now, the, the problem is it's going to be misinterpreted by your, your commentaries if they don't understand uh, Ezekiel and they don't understand the Hebrews chapter 9 passage. Because later on, 
he will invite the disciples to touch him later on, right? He will invite them, touch, feel, especially with doubting Thomas. Touch me. He'll eat with them and, and uh, you know, have fellowship with them. He'll be with them. But why did he tell her not to touch him at that point in time? But he told him to touch him later. And he says, I'm not yet ascended to my father. Well, that ascension cannot be the ascension 40 days later. It can't be for that because they were touching him. They were fellowshipping with him. They were eating a meal on the, on the, on the Sea of Galilee with him. They were interacting with him and touching him. So what ascension was he referring to? I've not yet ascended to my father, so don't touch me. It ha- that language, if you understand the Jewish background, is the same thing the high priest would say before offering the blood sacrifice. You could not touch the high priest who had the blood in his hands and was getting ready to do the sacrifice. You can't, t- hands off, don't touch him. He has to go in alone, doesn't he? Don't touch him. He goes in alone. So the idea, don't, don't hang on to me is exactly what a high priest would say before going into the tabernacle. Don't touch me. I now have the blood. Don't defile me. I'm going in there to make the sacrifice and to, to put the blood on the altar. So when he says that to her, that's high priest language. So guess what he was about to do after his interaction with her? He was going to take his blood, ascend and cleanse the tabernacle of heaven. And then he would return subsequently after that for a period of 40 days. And he would invite them to touch him. But he only allowed them to touch him after the blood was taken to the heavenly tabernacle. And then, 40 days later, you have the ascension, but in that ascension, he takes all the inhabitants of Abraham's bosom with him at that point in time. So this was a solo ascension as a high priest would go solo into the Holy of Holies, right? Same pattern. And so when you do all the math, so to speak, and you put all this together, it answers why he told her, don't touch me. He's going to take his blood. So Christ's blood is not on this earth. It's in heaven. Every drop of it. It's, it's precious. And so because of that, we have redemption and the, 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 the tabernacle is cleansed. Yeah, I know. I think the problem with Ron Wyatt's story is he doesn't have enough witnesses. Because it's just him saying it. It's him interacting with an angel. It's him seeing the Ark of the Covenant. And the problem is, his other discoveries are legit because he has multiple witnesses outside of his organization that testify, whether it's the crossing of the Red Sea, Noah's Ark, all these other things that he found, even, even uh, Joseph's bins in, in uh, Egypt. That's all been uh, corroborated by other researchers. Well, that's, that's what I, I understand from the Scripture. You've got to have two or three witnesses for something to be legitimate. So with Ron's thing, you don't have multiple witnesses attesting to this. So my thing about it is, if he he says it's the blood, but the problem is, what, what Israeli doctor did he go to? What's the name of the guy? What's the institution that you did this to? Uh, but I, ne- I watched his videos. He never said who. He just said, I went to an Israeli guy who tested the blood. But he never would say who. So I take it with kind of a grain of salt. Maybe. And still, even if that happened, let's say his theory was true. 
the blood's still not going to be there. Because if, if I believe the scripture, they took his blood to heaven. I, yes, it's possible that the, the Ark of the Covenant was below the, the cross, but that, that, that blood would be removed at that point if I'm, if I'm following the scriptures. Um, maybe, maybe not, you know, but Ron's going to have to, on that one, have a little bit more witnessing for that until I can accept it. If he does, okay. Uh, maybe it's left there. A, a, a portion of it is, is taken uh, as a, a sample. I don't know. But I think, I, I, I think the weight of the idea of the blood being taken to heaven is, is more weightier with Scripture attesting to it rather than uh, it possibly being in Jeremiah's grotto on the original Ark of the Covenant. It's possible that could have happened, but then I, I, I think... Um, even that did happen, he would take his blood to cleanse the sanctuary. Because um, I'm, I'm using the, the concept that I know I'm burrowing down here a little bit. The concept of the animal had to be drained of all of its blood. You couldn't leave any, any of the blood inside of the animal. So, that it, so the portion of the blood had to be a whole offering of the blood, not portions of it. And so if he's taking that blood to heaven, it had to be the whole offering. It can't be partial. I now get I'm I'm digging in there. Right, yeah. And so you know, you just, but even if it did happen that way, it's feasible. The problem is we gotta have witnesses, man. You gotta have witnesses. So I'm I'm, I'm let's, let's let's put it this way, Noah. I'm holding that I'm reserving judgment on that because I, I need more evidence. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'm just saying I just need a little bit more confirmation. Yes. Yeah. So you know that's that's the thing is is so you know and and one thing is okay does he leave it there for a witness on the original Ark of the Covenant? Maybe I don't know. But if 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 he's taking all the whole sacrifice, my my thing is I'm going to lean more towards what they would do to the animal, and they would drain the, the, the entire blood from the animal, and then they would have to offer the entire blood. And you couldn't keep, you couldn't keep any portion of the blood back. So that's where I kind of lean more on that idea is that it's, it's everything uh, for the heavenly tabernacle. Randy, and then we'll come back. Um, no, because I, I, I think because Messiah is in the order of Melchizedek. He's not... He's not in the Levitical priesthood, and so he's he's uh, comes from that line. So I, there wouldn't be necessarily anything hand, handing down. Um, but it's funny because he uses the language of a high priest of "Don't touch me." That 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 right there is language of high priest. Don't touch me. I got the I got the blood. So anyway, so, yeah. Go ahead, Noah. Sorry. Okay. So yeah, oh, there possibly could be, right. A drop falls from an animal. But the, the idea is the intent. So what they would do to make sure that didn't happen, obviously, is put a basin underneath the, the lamb's neck and slice the, the jugular, and then all the blood would pour out. So the idea was you have to get all the blood. Now, yeah, could it splatter? The priest sliced the neck, and it splatter on the priest because the priest would come out bloody, by the way. They had blood all over them by the end of the day. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously that would happen. But what the, the whole point is, what's the symbolic intent? It's the whole blood. Now, when you're dealing with Messiah, obviously him being God, 
He can take every molecule or atom he wants to and transport it because <laughs> he has that kind of power. The Levit- Levitical priests obviously couldn't. So there's going to be some splash. There's going to be some drops, you know, obviously. But the idea was the symbolic intent. It's the whole blood, not partial blood. Everybody in the Old Testament went to Abraham's bosom or paradise before the cross or before the ascension. That's where everyone went because you couldn't go into heaven because you were still in your sin. Even though you were declared righteous, you were still in your sin. The sacrifice hadn't been made. Yeah, so so they would have been declared clean at the cross historically. But practically, they weren't allowed to go until the ascension 40 days later. So practically speaking, it's at the time of the cross. When the sacrifice is made, when he says to Telestai, it's finished, that's when the sacrifice is accepted. And they're, they're declared cling at that point in time. But in actuality, he takes them 40 days later. So it's just a little bit of time delay there for the mechanics of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's a tough one because um, there's debate on that passage in the King James, whether that was inserted by a scribe or whatnot. But that being the case, um, when you look at what, even if you accept that as Scripture, and it's quite fine, um, what you you realize is there's always witnesses. You've got to be two or three witnesses, and so the witnesses of that of the of, of the blood and things doesn't necessarily have to be something that we see. It's the witness of that he shed his blood. That is the witness of our salvation. That's the witness of his redemption. That's the witness. And so you can have a witness and not be able to even see the witness, so to speak. Does that make sense? Because um, we all know about the blood of the Messiah. It's your told propositional truth that that's the blood that cleanses you, even though you don't see it. You don't see the blood of the Messiah, right? You don't even see Messiah. But it does, it does stand as a witness. He stands as a witness that if you trust me, the blood is the witness that I did the work of redemption. And then one day when we're in heaven, you will see the actual witness of that. You will see Messiah's blood. Uh, you'll see it on the altar. It's right there. Um, according to scripture. So, so you, you, that's why God testifies through those kinds of things, through propositional truth. You, and there's an element of faith that you have to take in on that. Any other questions? Clear as mud? Yes. Phil. I think it's an easier path because as you can see, you start going down a rabbit hole that they don't want to write about because they, they start they're having to defend these positions. And I think, unfortunately, in intelligentsia, if you start going outside of the Calvinistic norm or reformed norm, which don't talk, which, because what they do reform is they allegorize all this. Everything's a metaphor. Everything's a metaphor. And, and so if you read a Calvinist commentary on, on Hebrews 9, they're not going to say he took his blood to heaven. They're going to say that's a metaphor. And so I think what they do, number one, they want to stay in the intelligentsia circle. And then they don't want to have to go and explain this thing. Because as you can see, you start getting pretty deep into this, and you're like, oh, there's more going on than I thought, but it makes sense. It's, everything starts adding up if you go deep. And I don't think they just want to do that. I think, I know, and they just follow the path. And I, 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 don't, I, I think, Phil, the big deal is they want to stay in that academic circle because the minute you start saying this, you remove yourself from that circle, and you're not published. They won't, they won't publish your books anymore. And all of a sudden, you're fringe apparently. But what, 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 what's happening? 
That's the reformed Calvinistic dominant hierarchy dealing with academics. And they won't buck the system. So it takes guys like Chuck Missler. And it takes guys like, you know, that are outside of that circle to say, no, here's what it's saying. This is what it means. So it takes guys outside of that system that don't care to be published to start breaking it out. You've uncovered, Phil, the secret problem that we have in Christianity. Right? You have. It's the intelligentsia that think they know it all, and they want to metaphor, uh, metaphor and allegorize everything because of Augustine. <sighs> Anything else on, on this one? I know, it, I know we have to go deep, but you have to understand these things, okay? Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.